Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe for crispy, crispy onion strips from theblindkitchen.com. You're going to need this recipe for the next recipe. This is a Chef Deborah inspiration. This crispy onion strips recipe is designed to be a teaching tool for cooks who are returning to their kitchens. If you are not already comfortable cooking with vision loss, you may not need the details in the included links. If you are new to our tools and new to cooking with vision loss, these recipes as written and their links will be helpful. The links will take you to the description, including a video of the tools being used. I suggest you make twice as many of these crispy onion strips as you think you need. They have a way of disappearing. This is going to yield two cups of fried onion strips. The ingredients you'll need are one pound of onion or shallots of your choice, two cups of milk, either whole milk or buttermilk, one and a half cups of all-purpose flour, one teaspoon of garlic powder divided, one teaspoon of onion powder divided, one half teaspoon of paprika divided, a half teaspoon of cayenne pepper, this is optional, also divided, and one teaspoon of salt divided, and 32 ounces of vegetable oil. It'll be enough to deep fry. The tools that we're going to be using for this are an adapted measuring cups and spoons, and there's a link on theblindkitchen.com. This blind kitchen recipe hints for this recipe is you're going to work over a work tray at every opportunity to stay organized and contain possible spills. You're going to season the milk and the flour with the same spices, but in different bowls. It's efficient to have the bowls side by side to add the spices to each. Place the bowls of milk and flour right next to each other so that there is less chance that the food will drip as you transfer from bowl to bowl. And the same goes for placing the floured onion strip on the metal pan with the rack. Make sure the bowl of flour is right next to the rack or even on the rack to avoid a flour mess on your counter. Do not use your work trays for the paper towels or for receiving a floured onion strip before baking. They are a good size, but when it comes time to cook the onion strips, you will want the pans to be made of metal and to be able to place them as close to the hot oil as you safely can. The trays will melt if they're exposed to high heat. When it comes time to deep fry, make sure that the floured onions are as close to the oil as you can safely get. Also, before you deep fry, make sure that the paper towel lined sheet pan is close to the other side of the oil to receive deep fried strips and prevent the grease from dripping as you transfer them. Add the floured onion strips to the oil in small batches. Overcrowding the oil will lower the temperature and may cause the strips to soak up the grease instead of crisping them. Also, the strips need to move freely in the oil or they will stick together while they cook. And when you go to break them apart, there will be bare spaces instead of the crust where they stuck together. Tool for this would be work trays. Again, a link on theblindkitchen.com. First, you're going to put two cups of milk in a large bowl and then put one and a half cups of flour in another large bowl. Season each of the bowls with one half teaspoon of garlic powder, one half teaspoon of onion powder, 
one half teaspoon of salt, one quarter teaspoon paprika, and one quarter teaspoon of cayenne pepper, which is optional. Tools for this, the adapted measuring cups and spoons and the way around tags. You can learn more um, in Deb, Chef Deb's post, Labeling Clothing, and find out more about Way Around by going to their website. Again, a link at theblindkitchen.com. You're going to stir each bowl well and then set aside. Then you'll need a long wood spoon and you're going to peel and slice onions into very thin slices or rings as you prefer. Another tool is the cut glove and slicing guide, also all available at theblindkitchen.com. You're going to transfer your onion strips to the seasoned milk bowl and allow them to soak for at least 30 minutes. Next tool you'll need is a bench scraper. You're going to drain your onions well and discard the milk unless making a pan gravy. This would add lovely flavoring and creaminess. Another tool would be the side strainer. You're going to insert a rack into a rimmed baking sheet, toss the drained onions in the flour mixture to remove the rack, spacing them away from each other so that the flour does not clump and they do not stick together. You're going to line a rimmed baking sheet with paper towels to receive the deep fried onions to absorb the excess grease. You're going to heat your vegetable oil to 360 degrees and then lower one onion strip into the oil and you should hear it sizzle immediately. Adjust the heat to the lowest temperature that you can get to that immediate sizzle. Another tool that would be helpful is the talking thermometer and thermometer clip. You're going to add the floured onion strips to the oil in small batches. And then the next tool is a spider. And I'm going to click on that one to see what that is because it sounds a little confusing to me. It's the Blind Kitchen Spider is the perfect multi-purpose food strainer for your kitchen. It's commonly used for tossing, scooping, skimming, and lifting foods. The spider can be conveniently used for kitchen activities such as deep frying, sautéing, and stir-frying, and it's composed of a bamboo handle connected to a stainless steel rounded screen. And that's exactly what it looks like. It's a flat bamboo handle, and then at the bottom is this rounded screen that can help you get things out of the hot oil. That's called a spider, folks. We're going to listen and smell to the monitor uh, to monitor the cooking process. At 350 to 375 degrees, it should take about four to six minutes, depending on how thick or thin the onions were. When they are done, you're going to remove them from the oil and allow them to drain on the paper towel lined baking pan. And then you're going to add salt and pepper to taste. There's another one last tool, a salt cellar, also available on theblindkitchen.com. Enjoy. Once you have your green, your onion strips ready, then we're going to add them to the gourmet green bean casserole recipe. This is another Chef Deborah inspiration. The gourmet green bean casserole recipe is designed to be a teaching tool for cooks who are returning to their kitchens. If you're already comfortable cooking with vision loss, you may not need the details and in the included links, but if you're new to our tools and new to cooking with vision loss, these recipes as written and their links will be helpful. And the links will take you to the description, including a video of the tools being used. This is gonna yield six to eight servings. They also have an easier version of this, um, the traditional green bean casserole recipe 
That's also a link on theblindkitchen.com. For your ingredients, you'll need one and a half pounds of fresh green beans, four tablespoons of butter, one large or two small shallots, one half of a red bell pepper, 12 ounces of fresh mushrooms, one teaspoon of black pepper, one quarter teaspoon of nutmeg, one teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce, one teaspoon of soy sauce, two large cloves of garlic or four small, grated, a dash of cayenne pepper, this is optional, four tablespoons of flour, one and a half cups of vegetable broth, one half cup of half and half, and one half cup of grated Gruyere cheese. And you'll need two cups of the crispy onion strings that you just made. Tools needed for this are a talking scale, a butter slicer, measuring cups and spoons, way around tags for labeling, and a mini box grater. Again, links to all of those are at theblindkitchen.com. This recipe is prepared in six phases. Phase number one, you'll prepare two cups of the crispy onion strips, which we may have already done. (laughs) Phase number two, prepare the fresh ingredients, the shallots, the green beans, red bell peppers, and mushrooms. Phase three, you're going to par-steam the green beans and blanch. Phase four, saute the mushrooms and the diced red pepper. Phase five, make a roux-based white sauce. And phase six, assemble and bake and then broil. You're going to cut and measure all of the ingredients before you start to cook. Some are added quickly, one after the other. For example, the vegetable stock to the flour or butter roux. And a delay in measuring the stock can result in the roux being cooked too long and losing some of its thickening powder power. The same goes for sautéing the fresh vegetables. They are added in a relatively quick orderly sequence, and if you're slicing the mushrooms, the diced shallots being cooked in the pan will probably burn before you can finish. I like a well-planned mise-en-place, which translates to everything in its place, and is my mantra for a more relaxed cooking experience. You're going to arrange all ingredients on a work tray before you start to cook, and fill a sink with hot, soapy water for quick immersion of your hands You can learn more about this cooking tip within Start With Soapy Hot Water. There's a link at theblindkitchen.com. You can use a paper uh, or a towel clip to keep a clean cloth handy at all times. Use a salad spinner to plunge your green beans after they're steamed. It works as a drainer, and you can give them a quick spin to dry them further so that the delicious white sauce is in their nooks and crannies, not flavorless water. You're going to rinse one and a half pounds of fresh green beans, trim the ends and cut in half or two to three inch pieces, and then set aside. For the tools, you'll need work trays, towel clip, talking scale, and cut glove. You're going to clean and thickly slice 12 ounces of mushrooms. You'll need slicing guide, finger guard, and cut glove for that. And you're going to peel and fine dice two small or one large shallot and then set aside. Another tool is a finger guard and cut glove. You're going to clean, de-seed, and medium dice one half of a red bell pepper. Next tool is the finger guard and the cut glove again. You're going to peel and grate two large cloves of garlic or three small cloves. Next, the tools you'll need are the mini box grater and the cut glove. And you're going to grate one half cup of the Gruyere cheese, 
And the final tool for this is a mini box grater and cut glove. You're going to par cook the green beans, steam the green beans for three to four minutes to start the cooking process. They should be a bit softer than raw, but still be a bit crispy. They'll cook more later and you're going to immediately plunge them into an ice bath to stop the cooking and retain their color, drain, and set aside. In the same now empty pan over medium heat, you're going to add two tablespoons of olive oil after you know that the pan is hot. Use your finger to quickly tap the top rim of the pan, and if the top of the pan is hot, you can be sure that the bottom of the pan is hot too. So this little tap movement also helps you to know exactly where the pan is and if it's centered on the burner. The secret to not getting burned is to tap quickly and pull the finger back immediately. You're going to saute the diced shallots and the diced red bell peppers and sliced mushrooms for four to six minutes. You should just barely hear it sizzling. Add in the grated garlic and cook for one minute more. Remove all from the pan and set aside and do not clean the pan. You're going to make a roux-based white sauce next. So in that same pan, you're going to melt four tablespoons of butter over medium heat. You should just barely hear it sizzling. Use the whisk to check if the butter is fully melted. The smell of butter will change to a nutty aroma, and that is a good thing. You're going to add four tablespoons of flour to the melted butter and whisk constantly. Cook and whisk constantly for two to three minutes until well combined and the raw flour smell is cooked out. Add in one and a half cups of the vegetable broth and continue to whisk for four more minutes. Whisk constantly to avoid lumps from forming. The flour wants to stick together, but if you whisk it well, you will coat each grain with slippery butter and it will not be able to stick together to form clumps. Then you can remove the pan from heat and add the following to the cooling pan. One teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce, one teaspoon soy sauce, one teaspoon black pepper, one quarter teaspoon nutmeg. Uh, the tools for this are an adaptive wet measure spoons, adaptive dry measure spoons, mini box grater, and a cut glove. You're going to stir until well combined. Add in par-cooked green beans. Add in one half cup of half and half. You do this while the pan is off the heat to prevent curdling or the cream from separating, which is commonly referred to as a broken sauce. No broken sauces in the blind kitchen. You're going to put the pan back on the stove over medium heat, stirring gently and constantly. Cook for about five minutes until well mixed and hot. You do not want it to boil, and then remove it from the heat. You need a wood spoon and heat gloves, to, and then you're going to preheat the oven at 350 degrees. <clears throat> Another tools are tactile paint or bump dots, to mark the dials or flat screen control panels. Um, you're going to grease an 8 to 12 cup capacity oven safe dish with butter or oil. Add one half of the crispy onion strings, yum, to the mixture, cooling in the pan, and mix gently. Pour the mixture into the oven safe baking dish and spread to an even layer. Do not press it down firmly so that the heat can circulate through as much as the food as possible. And you're going to bake it at 350 degrees for 25 minutes until the bean mixture is hot and bubbling and removed from the oven. You'll need heat gloves and oven rack guards. Uh, you're going to distribute the grated Gruyere cheese evenly on the top of the mixture. 
And then I use a cut glove on my non-dominant hand to offer an extra layer of protection between my fingers and the hot food. They are not meant to protect from heat as the heat gloves are, but for a task like this, the heat gloves are too bulky to offer much tactile information. The cut gloves are a thin layer that gives you information and should not remain in contact with the hot food. All you need is a quick tap to help you know where you are as you sprinkle the cheese over the hot mixture. And you're going to sprinkle the remaining crispy onion strips over the top of the bean mixture. Do not stir. They will brown on the top. And then you've got your cut gloves again. And you're going to put the dish into the oven under the broiler for three to four minutes until the onions are sizzling and become crispy brown. Stay near the oven as it broils. You will hear them begin to sizzle and they will soon begin to smell more cooked. Remember that they were already cooked, so once you hear them sizzle, you know that they will start to burn in minutes, so you want to remove them soon after you hear that sound. They're about 30 seconds between broiled well and burned. Then remove from the oven and allow it to cool for 10 minutes before serving, and enjoy. I believe I have repeated this green bean casserole um, recipe from last week, but I hadn't given you the onion strips recipe with that, so I want to make sure you have those all together. And I think I'm running out of the uh, recipes on the Blind Kitchen page, so until Deb posts some more, I'll find some more resources. Next, we're going to jump to smittenkitchen.com to a chocolate raspberry pavlova stack. Oh, this looks incredible. I am a huge fan of meringue, and I see three layers of like meringue pancakes, fat pancakes with looks like whipped cream between and raspberries and some yummy chocolate and other sauce. Looks incredible. I'm going to give you the recipe. Not to be confusing, but this is also written by a Deb, a different Deb. Deb Perlman. It has been way too long since we had a showstopper of a dessert. When I look over the last four years of archives, it seems that practical, slightly boring, and grown-up things like salad and dinner have nudged out cooking purely for the purpose of generating and distributing decadent joy. This, the celebration cake category, Looks like the land that time forgot. And so on this very snowy, slushy day and the day before Valentine's, no less, I'd like to recommend not a weeknight dinner. Here's a three-tiered chocolate pavlova, a crackly-edged, pillowy-centered meringue with a few messy, wonderful things between and on top of it, raspberry curd, barely sweetened whipped cream, a drizzle of chocolate ganache, fresh raspberries, and a dusting of snow, almost as pretty as what's out my window right now. There are corners you can cut if you wish. You could use a drizzle of store-bought chocolate sauce. You could make a quicker raspberry dessert sauce instead of making the curd. But as the curd uses six egg yolks and the pavlova uses six whites, you might find the balance of ingredients when you make both as satisfying as I do. You could also revert to the single-layer chocolate pavlova in the archives should you need less of everything. But I'm telling you folks, this is what I'm going to ask for for my next birthday. It looks beautiful. The spirit here is maximalism. This is not a one-bowl cake for rush times or because you forgot someone's birthday at the last minute. For that, there's this or this, and there's, re- there's links on smittenkitchen.com. 
The stack is wobbly and a little chaotic with a mix of sweet, tart, creamy, bittersweet, crisp, and gooey textures and flavors that a regular layer cake could only dream of. It's fun, it's happy, it's quietly gluten-free, and it promises to make anyone you share it with happy. So here's the recipe for this beautiful dessert, chocolate raspberry pavlova stack. It serves 8 to 12, takes about 4 hours, plus 1 to 2 hours of resting time, and the source is here at Smitten Kitchen. Definitely read this recipe through, especially what can and cannot be made ahead, listed at the end. Do this all before you start. While I've simplified it in every way such as that such a wobbling centerpiece of a dessert can be without compromising what it is, please let this be an indulgence of a cooking project. One you should give a minimum of three and a half hours to from baking to assembly, plus additional resting, resting time so that it can soften. A few weeks ago, I began one at 3 p.m. for a 6 p.m. dinner party, and it was not enjoyable in any way. I look the way I do when I don't have enough time to get ready. So here's the recipe for the pavlovas. They're going to be six large egg whites, one and a half cups of granulated sugar, one quarter teaspoon of kosher salt, one and a half teaspoons of balsamic or red wine vinegar, one quarter cup of unsweetened cocoa powder, any kind, sifted if lumpy, two ounces of semi or bittersweet chocolate, finely chopped, raspberry curd, it's going to be 12 ounces. It's about two and a half cups of fresh or defrosted raspberries. Two tablespoons of fresh lemon juice. One half cup plus two tablespoons of granulated sugar. And six large egg yolks. Three tablespoons of unsalted butter. As far as assembling and finish, you'll need four ounces of semi or bittersweet chocolate, finely chopped. Two cups of heavy cream, divided two teaspoons of granulated sugar, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, and one cup of fresh raspberries and powdered sugar for dusting. To make the meringue, you're going to heat your oven to 300 degrees Fahrenheit and use a pencil to trace um, three 8-inch diameter circles on each of the three separate pieces of parchment paper. Place the pencil side down on the baking sheets. Beat the egg whites with the whisk attachment of an electric mixer on medium to medium-high until thickened. Satiny peaks will form. This is very important to achieve before adding any sugar or the structure will collapse. Then you're going to beat in the one and a half cups of sugar a spoonful at a time until the mixture is stiff and shiny. Sprinkle the surface of the mixture with a salt, vinegar, cocoa powder, and two ounces of chopped chocolate and gently fold it in with a spatula, being careful not to deflate the meringue at all. Dollop in big spoonfuls into the prepared parchment circles and use the back of a spoon to push them into thick, ripply discs. Place in the oven and reduce the temperature to 250 degrees Fahrenheit and bake until the pavlovas are crisp and dry to the touch, about 75 minutes. They feel a little sticky or look shiny in places at 75 minutes, Add another 15 minutes, and then turn the oven heat off. I stick a spoon or balled-up dish towel in the oven door to keep it slightly ajar while slowly cooling the pavlovas. You can cool them completely this way, but I get impatient after about 30 minutes and cool them the rest of the way with the door open. 
You might get a couple of small cracks, but it won't matter for this rustic dessert. Meanwhile, you're going to make the raspberry curd. You're going to puree your raspberries in a food processor or a high-speed blender and push through a fine mesh strainer to remove the seeds. Place one half cup of this raspberry puree. You will have a little bit extra, save for a smoothie or a yogurt bowl. Uh, lemon juice, one half cup plus two tablespoons of granulated sugar and egg yolks. Put them all in a medium large heat proof bowl and whisk to thoroughly combine. Bring a medium saucepan with an inch or two of water in it to simmer on the stove and place the bowl with a raspberry mixture over the pot. The bowl should not touch the water. You're going to cook, stirring until the mixture begins to thicken and it coats the spatula or whisk. This is going to be between 170 and 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Do not let it come to a simmer. The mixture will thicken right before it will. Remove from the heat, add butter, and stir until it melts. Transfer the curd to a bowl to cool completely. It will finish thickening as it cools. And to hurry this along, as I always do, set the bowl in a larger bowl of ice water, ensuring that the ice water is far below the surface of your bowl so that it doesn't splash in, of course. And you're going to let it cool, stirring it occasionally so it does so evenly. Then you're going to make the final components. Once the pavlovas and raspberry curd are completely cool, you can get ready to assemble the dessert. To make the chocolate sauce for drizzling, Place four ounces of chopped chocolate in a heat-proof bowl and bring three-quarters cups of the heavy cream to a simmer in the microwave or in a small saucepan on the stove and pour it over the chocolate. Let it sit for one minute and then whisk the mixture together until the chocolate is smooth and glossy. Set it aside to cool slightly. To make the whipped cream, you're going to beat the remaining one and a quarter cups of heavy cream with two teaspoons of granulated sugar and vanilla extract until it reaches soft peaks. Next is the assemble and rest bit of this. <laughs> You're going to place a dab of raspberry curd in the middle of a serving plate and place the first layer of pavlova on top. The curd can help it stay in place. Then you're going to spoon about one-third of the raspberry curd, you can just eyeball the amount, over the pavlova and use a small spoon or offset spatula to gently nudge it across the surface. If it wants to spill over the edges in places, just let it. Spoon one-third of the whipped cream over the curd and again use a spoon or spatula to nudge it out to the edges. Drizzle some of the chocolate sauce over the whipped cream, letting some drip. And then you're going to place the second pavlova disc on top and repeat this process twice with the remaining curd, cream and some of the chocolate and the remaining pavlova layer. You're going to finish with fresh raspberries and a final drizzle of chocolate and a dusting of powdered sugar. You're going to transfer this completed pavlova stack to the fridge for one to two hours before serving and up to six hours. The longer that it hangs out in the fridge, the softer the center gets, but I promise even at eight hours, nothing will be bad about it. And then to serve, you're going to serve this pavlova in messy wedges. If it's in the first couple of hours of resting time, you'll probably want a sharp serrated knife to cut through the pavlova layers. 
Leftovers keep in the fridge for up to four days, but the edges of the pavlovas get more dry and the center more soft and chewy each day. As far as doing ahead, the, bake, the baked meringues will keep lightly wrapped at room temperature for a day. The raspberry curd will keep in the fridge for four days. The chocolate sauce and whipped cream are best made right before assembly, although there are ways to make fridge-stable whipped creams, and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com for that. The chocolate sauce would likely need to be gently rewarmed to be thin enough to drizzle it if made in advance, which doesn't seem like it would save any time. These look incredible, delicious. I just want you to enjoy these fully. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.